Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm Lucas Rappel, and today I'll be speaking to Jennifer Durr. Jennifer is a historian of science, medicine, and the environment in the modern Middle East at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Jennifer has just published her first book with Stanford University Press, entitled The Live Nile, Environment, Disease, and Material Colonial Economy in Egypt. Jennifer's book offers a rich, deeply researched, and tightly argued account of how Egypt's colonial economy was materially shaped by the construction of what she calls the perennial Nile, that is, a complex system of irrigation technologies, most notably the Aswan Dam, that made it possible to practice year-round agricultural production. She carefully traces the dense network of political authority, financial capital, and elite expertise that made this system possible, and whose members in turn derived their power and legitimacy from the construction and maintenance of this ambitious socio-technical assemblage. But what is perhaps even more fascinating is the way Jennifer's book goes on to inquire into the subjective experience of Egypt's agricultural workers by asking how the construction of the perennial Nile altered the physical experience of laboring bodies in colonial and semi-autonomous Egypt during the 19th and early 20th century. It is a fabulous book, and we are so lucky to have Jennifer with us to discuss it in person. Welcome, Jennifer, to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for I'm thrilled to be here. Great. So can you tell us a little bit about your new book, The Live Nile? Uh, what is it about? Where and when does it take place? And what are some of its major arguments that you try to make in this book? So The Lived Denial is a study of what I call material colonial economy in the century that stretches between the middle of the 19th and the middle of the 20th century in Egypt. Now, there is a kind of geographic formation that sits at the center of my book that helps to frame my analysis, and that's a formation called the Perennial Nile River. In Egypt, beginning in the 1820s, but really intensifying in the middle of the 19th century, the Nile River was transformed through the construction of new forms of irrigation infrastructure. And that irrigation infrastructure made possible the production of year-round agriculture and also the cultivation of a set of cash crops, namely cotton, that hadn't been possible in Egypt before. And so the lived Nile looks at the production of subjectivity along the perennial Nile River during the century of Egypt's colonial economy. And it argues that consideration of this environmental formation and its relationship to practices of colonial economy was fundamental to how a wide range of subjectivities were produced. And this included... um, political authorities on the Nile River, experts like engineers and physicians, but it also included the ways in which rural communities lived the experience of colonial body, colonial economy through their physical bodies. 
Fascinating. So can you tell us a little bit about how this differs maybe from the way other people in the past, previous historians, have thought about Egypt's colonial economy? Absolutely. So in Egypt, there is a robust body of scholarship that thinks through the experience of colonial economy, but largely from the vantage point of either the economic history of cotton production or the social relations of the countryside that include questions like land tenure and labor. So in Egypt's colonial economy, this was an economy that was oriented toward the production of cotton for export. Most of that cotton exported to textile mills in the north of England. And cotton production was associated with a dramatically unequal distribution of land, whereas a small class of large landowners controlled large swaths of the countryside, and many Egyptian cultivators and peasant producers were forced either to cultivate smaller and smaller pieces of land or to work as agricultural wage laborers or sharecroppers on large estates. And so much of the literature in the field has thought the history of this period from the vantage point of social history. My work is different in the sense that, first of all, it thinks the histories of environment and political economy as fundamentally linked. So I argue in my work that agrarian history is always environmental history and that thinking through the materialities of that environment are crucial to understanding how Egyptians in the countryside lived experiences of colonial economy. Um, the focus of my work is also different because I think subjectivity both as a conscious construct, but also as a physical construct. And so a lot of the lived Nile is focused on thinking through the ways in which bodily subjects experienced and lived colonial economy. Yeah, that's amazing. I definitely want to talk more about this question of subjectivity and the kind of physical experience of colonial subjects and their material bodies. But before we do so, I wanted to ask a little bit more about, so you mentioned that one thing that you look a lot at in the book is the kind of material construction of irrigation infrastructures. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Like how was, what did irrigation infrastructure look like at the beginning of the book? How did it change throughout the course of the period that you're looking at in this book? How was the material environment and ecology of colonial Egypt built and changed during the period that you write about in this book? Absolutely. So for much of its history, Egyptian agriculture corresponded with the kind of temporal rhythms of the annual Nile flood. So the flood would arrive sometime between late July and early August, and cultivators would channel its waters into large basins that lined the Nile Delta and the Nile Valley. These waters would soak the soil, they would be evacuated, and then crops were planted in these basins that were harvested the next spring. So what begins to happen in the 1820s is that a new irrigation practice is introduced, and it's first introduced in the Nile Delta and in select regions of Central Egypt, and this is called perennial irrigation. So perennial irrigation means that not only can crops have access to irrigation water throughout the year, it also means that 
crops like cotton, sugarcane, and maize, which could not be grown in large quantities using the kind of temporalities of flood-based agriculture, could be grown in larger quantities. So what happens in Egypt beginning in the 1820s and stretching through the 1930s is that the infrastructure of the Nile River is gradually transformed so that infrastructure is built and that infrastructure includes the excavation of irrigation canals to replace basins. It also includes the construction of barrages along the river and eventually that of the 1902 Aswan Dam, which serves as a storage facility for irrigation water. And so beginning in the 19th century and stretching through the 1930s, larger and larger portions of the Egyptian countryside are converted to perennial irrigation and are able to produce these cash crops. And so this geography of what I call the perennial Nile River and the ecologies and the multi-species relations that were associated with this geography, this is the kind of spatial formation that shapes the book. Yeah, that's amazing. I had never thought about the the way that material infrastructure doesn't only change the kind of material ecology or built environment of a space, but also its temporality. So that's a totally fascinating kind of contribution to make. I wanted to ask you about an argument that you make near the beginning of the book, which is about the way that these infrastructure projects, the construction, management, maintenance of these infrastructure projects, not only change the physical landscape of the Nile River Delta, but also function as a kind of a, a way of performing one's expertise, in particular from different kinds of engineers, both colonial engineers, but also Egyptian engineers. So can you just tell us a little bit more about that argument? So what do you mean by performance? How is expertise performed? And how is the natural and built environment, how are those enrolled in order to help engineers perform their expertise in colonial Egypt? Absolutely. So in the first chapter of the book, the first chapter of the book is an examination of the early years of British irrigation engineering in Egypt. And so within the historiography of engineering, and specifically that within the sort of lands of the British Empire, the kind of narrative of British civil engineering is that British engineers learned how to produce irrigation systems through the British colony in India, and specifically through their presence in northern India, and that when these same engineers came to Egypt, they used the forms of knowledge that they acquired in India to build Egyptian irrigation systems. Now, the problem with this narrative, from my vantage point, is that it, first of all, it assumes the expertise of these British engineers. And so one of the things that I do in the book is to think critically about how British engineers were trained and what the early years of their work in Egypt was like. And so from a certain vantage point, I take the kind of bravado of colonial engineering and think about that historically. And what I argue in the book is that when British engineers arrived in Egypt, they encountered a complex geography of irrigation and agriculture of which they knew very little. So for the first decade of the occupation, if one reads the reports that are produced by these engineers 
through their time at the Egyptian Public Works Ministry, one can actually observe the process of these engineers learning actively how to manage the Nile from Egyptian cultivators and local officials. And so this is a practice that I talk about as the vernacular of the Nile River. And so, you know, the reports that are produced early in the occupation in the early 1880s look significantly different from those that emerge in the 1890s because the process of learning this Nile vernacular and its style of irrigation is on display in the work of these engineers. However, in a certain sense, that is the lesser challenge to the expertise that these engineers possess because when the British occupy Egypt in 1882, they encounter not only this kind of complex ancient system of irrigation, but they also find a world that is populated by other engineers. So in Egypt, in the 19th century, this is a period of Egyptian history in which a strong Ottoman governor named Mehmed Ali builds a centralized state that has a rather extensive bureaucracy. And part of that bureaucracy involves the construction of elite technical institutions, among these institutions, a school of engineering. So beginning in the 1830s and stretching really until the British occupy Egypt in 1882, this is an institution that trains Ottoman Egyptian engineers to be civil engineers. And so one of the things that's interesting about this training system is that the way that British engineering works during the 19th century is that most British engineers are trained kind of loosely in the military for general engineering tasks, or they um, acquire experience through a system of apprenticeship. So when the British occupy Egypt, they encounter a class of elite technical and formally trained engineers that serve as a kind of threat to them. And so one of the processes, one of the processes that I outline in the book is during this first decade of the occupation, I think about the ways in which British engineers needed to actively establish and perform their expertise. So throughout the book, both in relation to the fields of engineering and the fields of medicine, I think not only about the acquisition, the material acquisition of the forms of knowledge that comprise those fields, but also how experts used various means to establish themselves as indeed experts. So in the context of British engineering in Egypt, that included the production of texts that showed themselves to be experts in the Egyptian environment. Um, it also included the denigration in text of Egyptian engineers and the kind of ethos of the Ottoman Egyptian state. So subjects that were not directly connected to the process of constructing the Nile. Uh, one of the other issues that I think about is that for the first decade of the occupation, British engineers in Egypt were not actually building new irrigation works. They were maintaining works that had been built by Ottoman Egyptian engineers during the 19th century. And so one of the arguments that I make in the first chapter of the book is that this process of maintenance and specifically its materialities was one that threatened to undermine the kinds of knowledge that British irrigation engineers possessed because they were constantly in a kind of physical material dialogue with works of civil engineering that had been built in the 19th century by Egyptian engineers.
Yeah, interesting. If I could ask you to um, relate your answer in this question to some of what you spoke about in the previous question, in your response to the previous question about temporalities. As I recall from reading the book, there's also a way that ex expertise was performed through mastery over different kinds of both mastery over existing temporalities and then also the production of new kinds of temporalities, in particular through the creation of this, what you call the perennial Nile. So if I could just ask you to speak about that a bit as well. Sure. So when the British arrived in Egypt in the 1880s, the portions of Egypt that still practiced basin irrigation, there were complex calendars that guided agricultural production under basin irrigation. So just to give an example of that, Flood agriculture was associated with three different seasons. Um, those seasons were flood, summer, and winter. And each of those seasons, in, in each of those seasons, there was concentrated particular forms of labor, particular agricultural tasks, and particular expectations of production. So when the British land in Egypt, they need to understand what those are in order to effectively produce agriculture. On top of that, Egyptian cultivators would mark agricultural time by using the 13 months of the Coptic Christian calendar, which derive from the traditions of ancient Egypt. And even now in, Egyptian, in the Egyptian dialect of Arabic, people will use the Coptic months to talk about agricultural production and weather. So they're strongly associated with the Egyptian environment, and they would pair those Coptic months with the lunar Islamic calendar. And so when the British arrive in Egypt, they are forced to learn these new methods of marking agricultural temporality. And this is especially important because these methods of marking time are tied to the physical landscape. So in order to understand when to do certain things to the physical landscape, you need to be able to mark time in these different calendars. And so what happens is that as the British begin to promote perennial irrigation through the further excavation of these deep irrigation canals and then eventually the construction of the 1902 Aswan Dam, the construction of a perennially irrigated agricultural landscape means that the forms of marking time that were associated with basin irrigation were erased, and in their place emerge, emerges a new sort of irrigation infrastructure, a new agricultural calendar, and a new set of technical tasks in which British engineers possess a kind of unique expertise. So one of the arguments that I make in the book is that the actual built materiality of the Nile River from the period sort of moving forward from the construction in 1902 of the first Aswan Dam is a period in which the built form of the Nile River allows the British to, for the first time, claim a unique expertise in Egyptian agriculture, but also the material constructed form of this river will set the terms of expertise in the period that follows. So Egyptian engineers in the early 20th century under the British, learn to master and administer the Nile River in the same terms that British engineers had developed beginning in the late 1890s and through the kind of construction of the dam. So the river itself, and specifically the perennial Nile River, comes to set the terms of expertise for Egyptian engineering in the 20th century, moving forward following the construction of the dam. Yeah, that's so amazing. I mean, a kind of uh, an engineering project of mastering time itself. 
Can I ask you a little bit more about the construction of the 1902 Aswan Dam? So how was it built? Where exactly was it built? What, what were the consequences about the physical location, the decisions about where to locate the Aswan Dam? Who actually performed the labor of building the dam? What did that work look like? And then finally, who financed the construction of the dam and who benefited from its uh, production, its, its material construction? Absolutely. So in the 1890s, a set of different colonial actors all begin the project of thinking about building the first modern dam on the Nile River. So obviously, if you think about the history of British Empire, conquering the Nile River, discovering its source, it has a kind of storied place in the history of the British Empire. And building a dam and sort of implementing the project to control this river has a similarly storied place within the history of the empire. So in the 1890s, what happens is that colonial engineers begin to think about the construction of a dam as a way to produce a new British-dominated material field of expertise, while at the same time, colonial capitalists are looking at ways to increase Egyptian cotton production and to increase their profits from that cotton production. And the dam would greatly help in that project. Um, and so what happens is in the 1890s, these kinds of networks of colonial interests all begin to plan the project of building a dam. Now, construction on this dam begins in southern Egypt, close to the city of Aswan in Egypt's deep south. So the dam is built very near the site of a southern Egyptian village named Shalel, which is the site of the Nile's first cataract. And construction begins in 1898, and it stretches until 1902 when the dam is completed. Now, interestingly, the kind of funding story for the dam reveals something much, much larger about the role of colonial capital in Egypt. So the dam is initially funded by a German-British financier named Ernest Cassell, who had funded a number of infrastructure projects globally. Um, Cassell uses the dam as a way to intensify his interest in Egypt. And when he provides the funds to build the dam, and this was a loan that was eventually paid back by the Egyptian government to Cassell at quite high interest rates. But during the process of the dam's construction, Cassell also becomes involved with, this, with a group of local capitalists in producing profit from agricultural property in Egypt. So what do I mean by that? So what happens following the dam's completion is that Cassell and a group of local capitalists sell large portions of state properties in central Egypt. These are regions that after the construction of the dam will be converted to perennial irrigation and will begin to produce large quantities of cotton. Now, Cassell and the same group of local capitalists were also involved in banking in Egypt and specifically in agricultural banking. And they were involved in the sugarcane industry, which existed in Egypt South and which I talk about in the third chapter of the book. So there is a story of colonial capital that is associated with the dam's construction through which the dam is one development in a set of nested agricultural interests that helped to produce Egypt's colonial economy and specifically the kind of relationship between land ownership and the production of cash crops. Now, when the dam is built, 
The dam has another story and it's associated with its construction. And that is a story of what it means to produce a large piece of infrastructure in this period of Egyptian history. So most of the laborers that built the dam actually migrated to Aswan from more northern sections of Egypt. So generally the kind of pathways of labor migration in Egypt flow south to north because it was in the north in the cities of Cairo, Alexandria, and those of the Suez Canal zone that much of Egypt's economy was concentrated. So the dam produces a kind of reversal in these labor pathways where you see the unskilled labor that built the dam migrate south to Aswan. Um, they were joined by skilled laborers that were often either Greek or Italian. So in Egypt and in other places in North Africa during the 19th century, there are large and significant Greek and Italian populations that migrated to North African cities for work. Um, this is work that's also associated with the kind of masonry and stonework that helped to build the dam. Um, laboring conditions on the dam were incredibly dangerous. So the dam was built when the weather was hot. Um, workers oftentimes fainted of heat exhaustion. Um, there was also, the dam was built out of a kind of granite rubble masonry. And so much of the labor that built the dam was associated with moving large quantities of granite from the hills around Aswan to the site of the dam. So that was its own form of dangerous labor. And so the dam really, the dam like other pieces of infrastructure during this period, but I'm specifically thinking about the Suez Canal, is a project that many Egyptian laborers pay for with their lives. Um, however, we also know from folk songs that have been preserved from this period, that the wages that were associated with building the dam caused many of these laborers to move south and participate in its construction. Yeah, amazing. Let's talk a little bit more about the kind of labor history component of this project. So you also make a really compelling argument about the way that changes in the infrastructure of irrigation in the Nile River Delta, and in particular the um, construction of what you call the perennial Nile changed the experience, the subjective experience of the laboring body in Egypt's agricultural economy. So can you just talk a little bit more about what it was like to work in, to be a laborer in Egypt's agricultural economy and how that experience changed as a result of the production and construction of the perennial Nile? Sure. Before I do that, I want to say just a quick word about the ways in which labor history has been written in the Middle East. So there is a significant body of labor history in the historiography of the region, but much of that history focuses on urban workers, and specifically urban workers that express particular forms of class consciousness and tend to do things like go on strike that we can see from the historical record. Um, there's much less there's much less that has been written that's about agricultural labor, and in part that is a question of sources, right? So agricultural laborers tend not to organize in the same way as urban laborers do during this period, and they tend not to make their ways into state archives in, you know, they don't have the same kind of visibility that urban workers do. And so one of my interests in this project was an interest in finding alternate ways to think the history of agricultural labor. Now, from my vantage point, as someone who is interested in 
not only questions of environmental history, but what I will call material multi-species relations. Okay, so part of the ways in which I think about environmental history has to do with the relationships that human beings have to the material worlds in which they exist. And so as I started to kind of immerse myself in the environmental and ecological changes that were associated with the construction of the 1902 dam, it became clear to me that many of those environmental and ecological changes, the site of those changes was the human body itself. And so let me talk about how that worked. Um, under the system of flood-based agriculture that existed in Egypt until the 19th century, um, cultivation and agricultural labor was concentrated during one particular point of the year, and that was when crops were actually in the ground. The introduction of perennial irrigation and the production of a perennial Nile River is associated with, and can only become possible, with the emergence of new forms of labor. So on a most basic level, level cultivators actually practice agriculture in a year-round cycle rather than in just particular parts of the year. But on top of that, and I think in some ways more importantly, the process of producing the perennial Nile is a process that requires constant labor. So oftentimes when we think about environmental change, we think about environmental change as a set of finished and bounded acts. And one of the arguments that I make in the book is that the practice of the perennial Nile River was a practice through which laborers were constantly constructing the infrastructure, whether that meant digging canals, which was often done with their bare hands, um, clearing those canals of sediment during the winter, um, shoring up the banks of the river, or being immersed in irrigation canals as they practiced year-round agriculture. And so one of the projects in my book is to think labor as a physical embodied project, and specifically in the realm of Egypt's colonial economy, which was like many colonial economies and agricultural economy, to think through how the materiality of that economy was connected to the practice of agricultural labor. Yeah, so one thing I would like to ask you to speak a bit more about is the importance or the role of pain in this history. So you describe all sorts of different sources of pain uh, that these laboring bodies had to endure as they engaged in this year-round agricultural production. I would just like to ask you to talk a little bit about more, more about that. So what were those sources of pain? What, what was, how were they experienced? And how did those experiences change over the period that you write about in this book? Absolutely. So one of the sort of broad arguments that I make in the introduction to the book is that as historians and historians that work on you know, environmental change or medical history or, a, or periods of history in which we know that social relations inflict particular forms of violence, that as historians, it's our responsibility to think of ways that we can look for pain in the archive. So one of the arguments that I make in the introduction of my book is that when we think about embodied processes, pain is a consideration of those embodied processes, and that because 
historical subjects don't often go to state archives and talk about their experiences of pain, um, that we need to think carefully about sources and archives and how to find questions of pain and questions of physical toil um, and to tell those stories in our recountings of history. Now, in part, that's connected to what I think about as a more robust consideration of what counts as violence. So in the historical record, um, bounded, articulated acts of violence are the kinds of fodder that we see reflected in historical documents. And indeed, in Egypt, there are many of those acts during the period of Egypt's colonial economy. So um, revolts against the state, both the Ottoman Egyptian state during the 19th century, are common and also under the colonial regime. Um, we also see, especially in Egypt South, the individuals who are associated with the Egyptian sugar company, so colonial capital, there are a number of assassinations, anonymous assassinations of those officials. Um, we also know that for Egypt's peasants, the 19th century was a period in which they experienced forced labor, military conscription, land dispossession, a number of kinds of acts of violence that appear quite clearly in the historical record. Now, what I try to do in my work is to think about violence as, you know, what we would call slow violence, and to think about the ways in which environmental change and disease produce new experiences of pain and experiences that come to be constitutive of the forms of pain that Egypt's rural cultivators experience more broadly under the period of colonial economy. Now, from a historical vantage point, that was complicated. And so one of the tasks that I undertake in the book is to think about what disease did to the bodies of Egyptian cultivators. So following the construction of the 1902 Aswan Dam and with the spread of perennial irrigation throughout the Egyptian countryside, a set of environmental diseases became much more common in Egypt. And those diseases included the, the parasitic disease schistosomiasis, um, also caused by a parasite, the disease hookworm, and then the disease pellagra, which results from a vitamin deficiency and an over-reliance on the consumption of maize or corn. And so all of these diseases become very, very common in the parts of Egypt that have access to perennial irrigation. And these are diseases that to some extent are produced both by consumption patterns and poverty in the countryside, if we're thinking about pellagra, but also by the fact of labor itself. So in relation to the parasitic disease schistosomiasis, Schistosomiasis, the prevalence increases dramatically with the spread of perennial irrigation because perennial irrigation means that Egyptian cultivators are spending longer portions of the year immersed in the water that fills new irrigation canals. These are canals that serve as habitats for tiny freshwater snails that serve as the intermediate hosts for parasitic infection. These are also canals that Egyptian cultivators spend a lot of time in during the warm parts of the year, so late spring and early summer, when one is most likely to become infected with a parasite. And so the, the act of labor and the process of labor becomes one means through which disease is produced 
and normative habitations of the rural body and especially the rural laboring body become experiences that are, are increasingly filled with new forms of pain. So by the early 20th century, it's not only common for Egyptian cultivators to be infected with either schistosomiasis, hookworm, or pellagra. It is increasingly common that cultivators suffer from more than one of these diseases and from more intense sort of manifestations of these diseases because they are engaging in forms of environmental intimacy, which means they are constantly being reinfected, especially with parasitic disease. If I could, let me ask you a little bit about how this portion of your book or these sets of debates and arguments that you're engaging in with in this book contributes and relates to the history of medicine. So in particular, one thing I was very interested in while reading your book was an argument that you make about the way that medical expertise was enrolled and was used in the construction of a kind of normative Egyptian laboring body. So what do you mean by a normative body and how was this normative body built through medical infrastructure and medical projects of other kinds? So just to summarize, when we think about the history of especially colonial medicine in Egypt, I am making the argument that you know, we have a rich body of historiography that tells us about the kinds of ideas about race and the ways in which that informs a broader practice of tropical medicine. Sometimes that's connected to ideas about hygiene. Sometimes that is connected to questions of labor. But there's a rich body of historiography from the global standpoint. Now, in relation to Egypt, I make the argument that the history of medicine and specifically of colonial medicine and the impressions and treatment strategies with which it is associated, that we have to think that history in the broader history of colonial economy and specifically the environmental transformations, including bodily transformations that it produces. So I think about the history of medicine during this period as local, as specific to the kinds of environmental entanglements that physicians are recording and responding to, and also connected to a broader issue of political economy in the period. Yeah, so if I could just ask a quick follow-up um, to kind of draw you out a little bit more on some of these very specific local entanglements. So what precisely were some of the medical interventions that these global health practitioners brought to Egypt? And what was the experience like for Egyptian agricultural workers and other Egyptians who went to these medical clinics and what kinds of, uh, what did, how did they interact with global medical practitioners and what were those, what were the consequences of those interactions? What kinds of in interventions were made on Egyptian bodies precisely? Okay, so just to set the scene, beginning in the early 20th century, so in the years, the short years following the completion of the 1902 Aswan Dam, physicians begin to make note of the fact that they are seeing increases in how many patients show up at hospitals and clinics that are infected with either schistosomiasis or hookworm or are suffering the disease pellagra. So an interesting sort of note on the side is that 
One of the symptoms of pellagra, so Egyptian cultivators are developing pellagra because they don't have access to a diverse um, array of food items. They're relying too heavily on the consumption of corn. That causes mineral deficiencies that we see in other parts of, I should say vitamin deficiencies that we see in other parts of the world as well. And with advanced cases of pellagra, one of its symptoms is dementia. And so in fact, in Egypt's first psychiatric hospital, which exists in the neighborhood of Abbasia, one of the things that we see is that a significant portion of the admissions to the psychiatric hospital are actually suffering from pellagra. So there is, among physicians, and also broader from a social standpoint, there is an active and growing controversy and conversation about the health of rural populations, and specifically laboring rural populations. But it's not until the period of the First World War and this largely emerges from a kind of British panic that soldiers stationed in Egypt might become ill with the same diseases that Egyptian cultivators suffer from. So there is a kind of infusion of energy and capital towards research in these diseases. It's also during the period of the war that a treatment regimen for schistosomiasis is developed. So what happens in the aftermath of the war is a kind of cluster of events. So in 1919 in Egypt, there is a revolution that is produced by especially middle-class and elite discontent with the fact that the British continue to occupy Egypt despite Egyptian contributions to the British war effort. Um, this revolution is quashed by the British, but results in several years later, Egypt gains a kind of quasi-independent status. And there's a lot of debate in the historiography about how independent Egypt is. Now, one of the facets of this quasi-independence is that at the Public Works Ministry and within the Ministry of Public Health, Egyptian scientists, physicians, and engineers rise to new positions of prominence, and they actually replace many of the European officials that had previously occupied those positions. So when we're thinking about this interwar period from the vantage point of expertise and the production of knowledge, it is in many ways a period of independence. So in Egypt in 1920, the Egyptian Ministry of Public Health decides to begin to establish treatment clinics that will treat both hookworm and schistosomiasis. Now, somewhat ironically or tellingly, treatment for hookworm had been available since the late 19th century. It just had not been distributed actively to Egyptian populations. So the interwar period Egyptian regime begins to establish these treatment annexes in Egypt's major towns and cities, but also throughout select regions of the countryside. Now, just to give you a sense of scale, by the middle of the 1940s, almost a half a million Egyptians are passing through these treatment centers every year. Now, treatment for hookworm is quite straightforward, and it's eventually reduced to just a single dose. But treatment for schistosomiasis requires a long and painful treatment regime. So from the 1920s through really the 1970s and the 1980s in Egypt, the disease was treated through a series of injections with the compound tartaromedic. Um, those injections were painful. They caused severe side effects that 
um, included nausea, fainting, um, the ejection, it's, the injection itself was actually a quite complex process, which meant that when done incorrectly, it caused tremendous pain. Um, and these injections stretched over a period of a month. So if you're thinking about this from the perspective of an Egyptian cultivator, this is a month without labor, which most cultivators can't can't afford. Um, nonetheless, there's a tremendous amount of social pressure by the Ministry of Public Health and especially by large landowners who are concerned about the health of their laboring populations to undergo treatment. So treatment becomes one way in which this kind of experience of pain is actually produced. So disease is painful, but then treatment is also painful. Um, in addition to that, there is you know, at least in the early years, some strong social coercion that motivates attendance at clinics. So when the first hookworm treatment clinics are established right before the outbreak of the First World War, patients are beaten to force their attendance. Um, and so this gives you a sense of the kind of willingness to engage state medical institutions. Um, but then, you know, the kind of lingering question associated with treatment is that after this long and painful treatment regimen, most patients are reinfected with disease because they return to the kinds of motions that comprise their rural life. They once again come into contact with soil that's infected with hookworm or the water and irrigation canals that's infected with the parasites that cause schistosomiasis. And so treatment becomes one more sort of method of producing a physical subject in Egypt, this time during the interwar period, and in many ways complements the, the difficulties of disease. Now, I want to say that I think what is vexing about these treatment programs is that Egyptian physicians and scientists very much understood that people would be reinfected following their return to, to rural life. But these treatment programs in a field of tropical medicine, which is still dominated by European and American actors and is still very much a kind of field of colonial knowledge production, research and work in parasitic disease becomes a way for Egyptian physicians and scientists to have a unique field site, to produce unique forms of knowledge. And so this whole realm, I think, is really, really important in thinking about the history of science and the history of medicine in this period of, you know, global South knowledge production. Yeah, so of course, you and I also are engaged in a project of knowledge production. So that leads into my penultimate question, so the second to last question, which is to ask you to think very broadly about kind of the big implications of your work. And in particular, if I could ask you about whether you have thoughts on how to write a decolonial or how to write, how to decolonize the history of medicine, the history of science and technology and environmental history and how your work perhaps helps to contribute to that kind of project. Absolutely. So. I think that in recent years, there has been a very heartening shift in both the history of medicine and the history of science, and that is a shift towards, you know, thinking about what we mean when we use the word science more broadly, and in 
parts of the world that are outside of the United States and Europe, that has meant thinking about, quote-unquote, indigenous forms of knowledge, both in the treatment and imagination of human bodies, but also in the ways in which people understand the function of the worlds in which they live. However, I think there is also a problem with that turn. And for me, the problem is, is that the turn towards considering indigenous forms of knowledge production has in some ways left undisturbed the fields of elite intellectual scientific production as we understand it. So to give an example of this, um, I'm currently working on a book project that considers the history of liver disease in 20th century Egypt. And that is because liver disease that is both caused by the disease schistosomiasis and also by the hepatitis C virus, which many people acquire through the treatment programs for schistosomiasis that I just described. So liver disease becomes very, very common in Egypt. Now, in part, for the research for this project, what I have been doing is I have been looking at the extensive contributions that Egyptian scientists and hepatologists made in under our understandings of liver disease. That said, in the kind of global understanding of how we understand the liver and the field of hepatology, that is an understanding that is very, very much dominated by contributions that have been made by scientists and physicians in Europe and the United States. And so when we think about decolonizing the histories of science and medicine, I think we both need to think more expansively about forms of indigenous knowledge and how they should contribute to those histories. But we also need to consider elite intellectual producers and their roles in um, contributing to, in some ways, what we think of as more standard histories of science and medicine. And so when we think about the decolonial project of knowledge production, I think that it requires both of those forms of working, one of which seeks to unsettle the kind of eliteness and Eurocentrism of science and medicine, but another which thinks about some of the more prestigious forms of the production of knowledge more broadly and more in a way that I would argue is more representative. So both a kind of a project of recovery, which is to say to recover the important contributions of global actors, people all over the world, indigenous communities in various places, but also a project of critique, to kind of critique the neo-colonial or post-colonial kind of contributions or forms of domination of Western science and technology and medicine. Absolutely. And so, you know, specifically in my own work, one of the questions that I'm interested in now is what happens to the field of tropical medicine in the global south in the second half of the 20th century. So my work on liver disease in Egypt, research on liver disease, was oftentimes situated in departments of tropical medicine that continued to exist in many major Egyptian universities and hospitals. And so, you know, I think that there are some of the main framing narratives through which we understand the history of medicine. I think by the time we get to the 20th century, those are narratives that still need to be challenged and thought through from a more complex vantage point, both geographically and substantively. 
Well, thank you so much, Jennifer. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation and it's a completely amazing book. So I encourage all of our listeners to go out and buy it. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here.